didn't realize we had a lot going on today. So I ask you to kind of bear with me. And I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. And I'm going to read a verse that you'll see where I'm going to go in this sermon. So stand with me. Peter chapter 2. And um, I'm going to look down at verse 21. First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 21. Hear the word of God as recorded. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of this holy word. You may be seated. Uh, that verse has been on my mind. And I want to read that verse. Because basically that's what the Christian life is all about. <clears throat> it's following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Now... This morning I'm going to look at the words from the cross. And you probably know those words by a phrase such as the seven last words of Jesus Christ from the cross. And I'm using the title, Words from the Cross. So pray with me. Father, as the songwriter said, how great is our God. We serve a great God. And Lord, we just want to thank you this morning for your greatness. For Lord, we worship you because you are holy. And Lord, we praise you for your greatness. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, you truly have been good to us. And Lord, this morning we need your help to understand the Bible. And Lord, we just ask you to give us understanding. And more than that, Lord, give us ears to hear, Lord, a voice speaking to us. And Lord, would you work by your power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, Lord, so that Jesus Christ may be seen, Lord, in such a manner, Lord, that we will worship him this morning. And Lord, we just ask you these things in no other name but our Lord and our God. Jesus Christ. And all God people say Amen. Now, as you know and perhaps have heard, last words are important. Especially the last words of a dying man. Last words usually indicates the kind of life one lived. You may have heard it said, you die as you live. Last word of a dying man can tell us a great deal about his life. There's one man in history who last words not only tell us a great deal about him, but also tell us a great deal of how we should live our lives. And that's why I want to read First Peter chapter 2 at verse 21, because he left us an example, and that's the example that we must follow. And based upon that, that brings us to the cross. 
Jesus is crucified, they are dripping with blood. And over 2,000 years ago, a man, Jesus of Nazareth, hung, dying on a cross for the sins of the world. Seven phrases were recorded from his lips on that day. And three of those sins are prayers and crucial moments in Christ's suffering and work on the cross. Those famous last words are revelation to us about our Savior and about our own lives as his believers. And I remind you this morning that Jesus died on our behalf for our sin. And Jesus is not asking us to die for him, although picking up our cross may come to such. Jesus Christ is asking us to be a living sacrifice for him. And once again, being redundant, that's exactly why I want to read 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 21. He is our example. Now, the first words from the cross is a word of forgiveness. And you can find those words in Luke chapter 23, verse 33 through 34. Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 34. And for the sake of... I'm not going to read those words, but I want you to focus in on verse 34. Verse 34. And when they came, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand, and the other on the left hand, then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's a prayer of intercession. Jesus Christ is praying for all the peoples who are at this crucifixion that particular day. And this is the reason Jesus went to the cross to forgive our sin. He knew he was going to be killed long before he went to Jerusalem. The New Testament teaches that he deliberately allowed himself to be crucified to pay for our sin. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them as he hung on the cross and God answered his prayer. Every person who trusts fully in Jesus is forgiven. And many of us today sit here. This prayer that Jesus prayed over 2,000 years ago came to fruition in your life and my life 2,000 years later, by virtue of that prayer from the cross. Now listen to these words. But I say to you who hears, love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Jesus Christ lived a life of forgiveness and he died a life of forgiveness. So once again, the purpose of the cross is our forgiveness. And Jesus made the statement in regards to that intersectory prayer and he said, they know not what they do. And that's in that verse. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, there was many peoples that day standing around 
observing and watching Jesus to be crucified. And I claim all of them were guilty. Judas was guilty. Caiaphas was guilty. The Jewish leaders were guilty. All who conspired to put Jesus Christ to death was guilty that day. But yet he prayed, Father, forgive them. Now, what I want to look at is just what does they know not what they do. Now, that's a very, very important statement that Jesus made. Jesus is not saying they do not know what they are doing, but what they do. When Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he was really saying, Father, forgive them because they need forgiveness more than they know. Father, forgive them because they are in desperate need of forgiveness and they do not even know it. They are guilty of killing a man, but they are guilty of much more than they know. They are guilty of killing the Son of God. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They knew what he claimed to be. Jesus claimed to messiahship for the Jewish people. But they claimed Jesus to be a blasphemer, a blasphemer. So he said to the Father, not that they are ignorant of my claim, and of the rejection of me as their Messiah, they know not what they do when they crucified me and rejected me. They have no idea what it meant when they did that. So you see, it's possible to forgive the unforgivable by remembering that Jesus forgave us when we were unforgivable. When he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. True, he was praying for all the people present at the crucifixion. But Jesus was not only praying for them, he was praying for you and I as well. In fact, about it, if you remember the day after Pentecost, Peter prayed a sermon and over 3,000 people joined the church. At that particular time, many of the peoples who was at the crucifixion were the very ones that believed then. So Jesus prayed for them back then, and they became believers after the fact. That's a deep meaning of the words from the cross. You can forgive the unforgivable if you remember that the peoples who have hurt you so deeply don't, at the deepest level, know what they have really done to you. Forgiveness is what they need, and you are the only one who can give it to them. How can we forgive the unforgivable? First, by remembering that the peoples who hurt us don't really know what they are doing. So we can learn from our dying Savior, Jesus Christ, died thinking of his enemy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is implication in regards that Jesus Christ is our example. He is our example. He died thinking about forgiven people. Now, the second word I want you to focus on from the cross is the word of salvation. 
Look at Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43 with me. And I want you to focus in on verse 43. Now, two thieves were crucified, one on either side of Jesus. And he says this, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's verse 43. Now, even when it would have been very easy for Jesus to focus on his own pain and heartaches, Jesus remembered what he was all about. We know that Jesus was a man on a mission. But Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. So Jesus is on the cross seeking and saving lost men. With his last breath, Jesus was living out his purpose in life on the cross. Now, it's so easy for you and I to lose our perspective and forget what we are here for. The criminal saw Jesus at his weakest moment, and still he believed in him. He is a crucified sinner trusting in a crucified Savior. No man ever looked less like a king than Jesus did that day. But yet, that thief believed that he was who he said he was. And to me, this is very, very amazing because this thief had none of the advantage the disciples had. This thief missed all the outward signs of Jesus' kingship, yet he believed. This thief evidently knew nothing about the virgin birth. This thief knew nothing about the conversion of Nicodemus, yet he believed. This thief knew nothing about the resurrection of Lazarus, but yet on the cross, he believed. Without all of that knowledge, he believed. Looking at our dying Savior from the cross. That makes the difference between heaven and hell. And when this and when the, uh, the, the thief said, Jesus remember me. He was expressing faith in the power of Jesus Christ. When the thief said, Jesus remember me. He was expressing faith in the mercy of Jesus Christ. When the thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief was expressing faith in the kingdom of Christ. And when the thief said to the other thief, this man has done nothing wrong, the thief was expressing faith in the person of Christ, a crucified sinner prays to a crucified Savior. That's what he was doing. In fact, about it, if you remember, when Peter was sick and he said, Lord, save me. It, did, it doesn't take very much. It doesn't take very much. And now, how do we know this thief was saved? We know he was saved by the answer Jesus gave to him in verse 43. And Jesus said this, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Jesus answered his request by giving him a promise with three points. He said, today, he said, this very day, not tomorrow, this day you will be with me. So, you see, that was immediately salvation. Immediately, the promise took place in this man's life. And also, that was something I call personal salvation. And Jesus said, with me. Jesus said, today you will be with me. That's personal salvation. He said, you and me together, side by side, Wherever Jesus was going, this thief would be right there by his side. You know, if I take this tissue and I put it in this Bible, it's in this Bible, where does Bible go, that tissue go? The implication of Jesus saying, where I go, you go. I like that. This thief would be right beside his Lord and his God. And also he made another promise to him. He gave him a heavenly salvation. Because he said, you will be with me where? In paradise. In paradise as we know, if we read over in Revelation, it's none other than what? Heaven. Revelation 2.7, it will tell us that paradise is none other than heaven itself. So you see that Jesus gave this man immediately salvation. He gave him personal salvation and he gave him something we all want to see one day. Heavenly salvation. Glory be to God. Now this thief here was not fit to live on earth, but we notice that he was fit to live in heaven with Jesus Christ. So it's never too late to turn to Christ. Even the very worst can be saved at the very last moment. Now, the conversion of the thief is very revealing. And I want you to listen to this here. The conversion of this thief on the cross is very, very, very revealing. And I'm going to tell you something. It shows this, that salvation is not by baptism or church membership. That was me for about 35 years. Lost. Believing in my baptism and my church membership. And never put my faith in Jesus Christ. I had never put my faith in Jesus Christ. Put my name on a roll. Ducked in some water. And that was it. Never professed Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Understand what I'm saying. Salvation is not by baptism or church membership. The thief did neither of these. Salvation is not by a good feeling. The thief only had bad feeling that day. He was crucified as well as being under conviction of sin. Salvation does not come by going forward or raising your hand. His hands were nailed to a cross as well as his feet. Salvation does not come by asking Jesus in your heart. Just think about this here. Suppose John or Mary or somebody down there at the foot of the cross was saying, Hey, Mr. Thief, invite Jesus into your heart. 
Think about that. That did not happen. I know I'm going against the grain, but I'm trying to drive you somewhere, people, because I know I've been there. Salvation does not come by asking Jesus into your heart. Who are you to ask the, the creator of the universe to do that? Who are you to ask the creator of the universe to do such a thing? I'm serious about this this morning. I'm very, very serious about this because I'm going to tell you guys, I've been lost for many, many years. Lost! And I share that with the guys sometimes. Lost! And I'm going to tell you this morning, I know what true salvation is. And I don't mean no harm by saying that. I mean no harm. I take this serious. Dead serious. Dead serious. Now listen to this here. Salvation does not come by asking Jesus into your heart. And we know that thieves couldn't do that. And I use an illustration to show that. And here's another one. Salvation does not come by saying the sinner prayer. The thief did not pray that. Once again, think about it. Someone down there saying, pray this prayer. Couldn't do it, God. The only, he only asked Jesus to remember him. Salvation does not come by changing the way you live. The thief had no time to do that, people. This thief was saved the same way that I was saved and you were saved, the old-fashioned way, and it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what the Bible says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It says none of these other things that we've been hearing and people been telling us to do. I mean no harm, guys. I mean no harm. I mean no harm. I relied on a prayer for many years to save me. And when I fell off the wagon, what they would tell me, well, say this prayer again. And then I begin to read the Bible, and it says, Morris, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And when I did that, this is what happened. Fire got into my bones. God, I want others to know that don't be misled, guys. I'm not saying nothing heretical up here at all. I know it may be going against some thinking, but the Bible says, when, when Peter preached that sermon the day of Pentecost, the people said, Peter, stop. What must we do? What did Peter say? Say it out loud. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When the earthquake took place in the jailhouse and the jailer got frightened, he went to Paul and he said, what, what, what must I do? What did Paul say? Please, God. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's the old-fashioned way. Jesus died thinking of the criminal by his side. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' desire for us is to live thinking about the lost. Hey, the third word from the cross is this. And we can find that word over in John 19, 
verses 25 through 27. And I want you to focus on verse 27. And the third word from the cross is the word of affection. Jesus Christ was a man of compassion. Now that's third by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, married the wife of Clothier and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Jesus, as we just saw with the thief on the cross, was always thinking about others. But here we see Jesus thinking about his mother. Because his mother is going to need to be comforted. Now, Jesus had other other brothers and what have been sisters, but none of those had believed and none of those were near the cross. So there's no way that Jesus can come down and go and find them and put his mom into their hand. So John being his beloved disciple, he committed his mom to John. And he's saying, John, take my mother and be a son to her, and she will be a mother to you. Because she would need some physical needs. She would need to be taken care of. And we talked about that over in Timothy, where Paul's encouraging Timothy about overseeing and taking care of widows and what have you. And we hear nothing of Mary, husband, Joseph at all. So Jesus is the only one that left to take care of her. And now he, he is being crucified. And now he is turning the reign over to John to take care of his mother physical need. But also, Jesus is talking to John because guess what? John is, is, is Jesus beloved. So now, John, based on what he is seeing and what he's experiencing, is going to need some type of emotional need. So this is why Jesus is addressing both of them in this particular case. So we can take a lesson from Jesus in regards to thinking about and honoring our parents who have no one to oversee and take care of them. Okay? Now, the fourth word from the cross is the word anguish. And we can find those words in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 46. And I want you to focus on verse 46. The fourth word is anguish. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathian. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now this is a, 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 a lament, a lamentation that Jesus is crying out. And a lament we know is just expressing sorrow and loss. Why have you forsaken me? Now, you might ask, which I ask myself, how can God be forsaken by God? How can the Father forsake his own son? The word forsaken is a very strong word. It means to abandon, to desert, to disown, to turn away from. 
So please understand what is going on now is Jesus is taking the burden of sin up on him and God cannot look upon sin so he has to turn away. He has to turn away. So the greatest pain of the death of Jesus was his separation from his father. And that separation is a spiritual separation. I think that separation was far worse for Jesus than the physical pain that he had to bear. In fact about it, there's nowhere nowhere in the Bible where he even complained about his physical pain. So the spiritual separation was devastating to Jesus. The son was separated from the father because of you and I. After a human life of absolute communion with the Father, the thought of separation was pain that seems unbearable. In all of eternity, the Father and the Son had been one. In this moment, the Son understood separation from the Father. To our shame, we live comfortably in our separation from God. And I asked myself as I was preparing this, what would cause me to abandon my son or my daughter? And as I pondered that question, nothing came to my mind. Nothing came to my mind. So when God looked down and saw his son bearing the sin of the world, he didn't see his son. He saw instead the sin that he was bearing. Just like now, when God looks down here, and you may have heard me say this before, and I'm not just saying this. When we look and see one another, we should see blood. Because guess what? When God looks at me down here, a sinner saved by grace, proclaiming the word of God, he sees what? The blood of Jesus Christ. He sees me cover in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees. That's what he sees. Because he sees me positionally, I am perfect in Christ. But practically, I am not. So he leaves me down here on earth, and he says, Morris, you go and practice what you are. Because we know there's a secular attitude that says what? Practice make. Say it a little louder. Practice make perfect. In the secular world, they got a hope to that, and they do exactly that. All you got to look at these football players and basketball players and the movie stars. They want to be like this person. This is your example. You follow this example, you can go up to the top. You see it all the time. So down here, we are practicing what God has declaimed me to be. I am perfect in the sight of Jesus Christ. But I'm practicing every single day the holiness of God. So Jesus was abandoned. 
that you might never be abandoned. Jesus was deserted that we may never be deserted. Jesus was forgotten that we may never be forgotten. So remember that. Now, the fifth word, I want to get us to communion here. The fifth word is suffering. And that can be found in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 29. And I'm going to focus on verse 29. The fifth word, suffering. And this suffering taking place in the humanity of Jesus. And it says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, let us not forget that he was human, 100% human and 100% God. Jesus became thirsty. He was a man with real need and was experiencing real pain. Jesus was in all ways tempted as we are. No wonder he was thirsty. Think about it. Lost of blood, exposure, heat, exhaustion, dehydration. He has been on the cross now for six hours. He is now, he who is the water of life now dies of thirst. He who is the water of life now dies of thirst. And I call your attention to this fact. Jesus has not complained at all about his physical condition throughout all the hours of suffering. As the old spiritual hymn goes, he never said a mumbling word. He never said a mumbling word because he did it for you and I because he loved us so much. So as we live for Christ, remember, suffering hard times are not signs that you are out the will of God because we know he was dead in the will of God. So the sixth word from the cross can be found in John chapter 19, verse 30. So bear with me. The sixth word is atonement. Atonement. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Jesus Christ was a man of destiny. It is finished. One can only say it is finished if he knows where he is going. Jesus understood the destiny that he faced and could enter it in total faith. We go through life leaving behind a trail of unfinished projects and unfulfilled dreams. How few there are who can come to the end of life and say, I finished exactly what I set out to do. Only one person in history never left behind any unfinished business. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only person who could come to the end of his life and say with absolute and total truthfulness, I have finished everything I set out to do. It is finished. And when Jesus cried, it is finished, he meant it was finished in the past, it is still finished in the present, and it remained finished in the future.
Now, since Jesus Christ, it is finished, paid in full, the work of salvation is now complete. Since Jesus Christ paid in full, it is finished. All efforts to add anything to what Christ did on the cross are doomed to fail. Since Jesus Christ paid in full, the only thing that you can do and I can do is accept it or reject it. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ left no unfinished business behind. He finished what he came to do, and in finishing his work, Jesus paid full atonement for our sins once and for all on the cross. And you know the song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. The last word from the cross, we can find over in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 46. And I'm going to focus on verse 46. So we see as a son commitment to the father. Now Luke is the only gospel that record this particular, these last words. And this is Jesus' final prayer expresses submission and surrender to the father as he commit himself in death. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost, which I said is a prayer of submission and a prayer of surrender. With his last breath, Jesus was committed to remaining in submission to the Father, a reflection of his total trust in the Father, a demonstration of the kind of faith we should live with. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul too understood absolute trust and submission to the Father. Father, this was Jesus' favorite title for God. And I believe that's Mike Johnson's favorite title as well. And he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. So I close in saying how thankful our heart should be, we who know him, and that we should love us, that he should love us like this and go all the way to such depth and to such horror to make us children of God. And we who do not yet know him, will you hear him now plead with you to come in a cry of repentance and faith. Come to him to accept the mercy that he offered you and the forgiveness that he won for you. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father who is our God, we come saying how great thou art to take a wretched filthy, dirty, nasty man as myself, Lord, and you have taken me and you have made something beautiful out of it. And Lord, I just thank you and I give you glory and I give you praise. And Lord, we do stand amazed in the perplexity at all that you endured on the cross for us. And yet, Lord, as we hear again that you did it for us, you did it for us. And Lord, we bow down asking you 
please, would you forgive us? Would you win us? Would you save us? For we ask this in no other name but Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. And all God people say, Amen.